High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a medical conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. What is medical? Sounds like a simple question, but nowadays, anything can be someone's medicine. The word medicine has been hijacked by profiteers and politicians with no medical training. As a medical doctor, a medicine is something that is researched, has oversight, and is prescribed or recommended by medical experts. If you had glaucoma, a condition that could make you blind, do you want medical advice from a board-certified eye doctor or a bud tender at a marijuana dispensary? Would you want to take a medicine that is FDA-approved to save your eye or some product from a pot shop? You decide. Marinol, Epidiolex are FDA-approved cannabis chemicals, specifically THC and CBD, that can be given in prescription form with consumer protection. Marijuana with 500 chemicals, toxins, carcinogens, is not a medicine. I'm upset with the medical profession that has allowed the sacred doctor-patient relationship and integrity of our profession to be kidnapped by addiction-for-profit industry and worse, to legitimize self-medicating by people who, with good intentions, are causing harm to their body. Years ago in California, we passed a law that you are not allowed to use the word emergency unless it met the criteria of an emergency department connected to the expected emergency services. That was important consumer protection. We did not want people to show up with a heart attack to a storefront or clinic with the word emergency that in reality didn't provide emergency care. I wish we passed similar laws for the word medicine. Today, marijuana is medicine, psychedelics are medicine, and people use methamphetamine, heroin, and fentanyl as their medicine. It is a degradation to the medical profession and to our collective health. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Lev. My name is Mark Ruiz. I'm a retired FDA agent, and I met you at Rocky Hearn's Drug Awareness Seminar at the high school in Vista, California. My son recently received a medical marijuana card at 18 years old and proceeded to become very addicted to marijuana and has since suffered from severe health and mental disorders. I'm very concerned about the irreparable damage that may have occurred to his brain. And I want to talk to you about a question I have. Here's my question. How does one rewire the brain circuitry to enhance his motivation and decrease depression and self-worthlessness from his very heavy marijuana use? Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Look forward to your answer. Mark, I am so sorry about the struggles that your son is having and so admire you for the efforts and tenacity you have into learning in order to help your son. And to answer your question about rewiring the brain, let's talk to a psychiatrist, researcher, and specialist in neuropsychiatric conditions. I think he can teach us about the neurochemistry that'll bring hope to your son. Dr. Cyril D'Souza is a practicing psychiatrist and medical doctor. He teaches other physicians and has a whole center on cannabis research at Yale. He gets funding from the National Institute of Health and focuses on schizophrenia, neuropharmacology. He has many more accomplishments. So to learn more about Dr. Cyril D'Souza, 
check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Cyril D'Souza, welcome to High Truths. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to hear from you. And there's so much that you could teach us about neurochemistry, mental health. Uh, we have a question from um, a listener. We wanted to learn about your research on marijuana and THC. But first, let's get to know you a little bit. Um, you're a psychiatrist. And tell us, how did you choose psychiatry and, and how did you get here? Yeah, so that, thanks for, for asking that question. Well, I... Um, completed my basic medical training in India. And as a medical student, we often make choices based on some of our uh, experiences, uh, choices in terms of specialty, et cetera. And I was in med school and I had a colleague of mine who started using marijuana quite heavily and he had a very bad outcome. And, um, it left quite a powerful impression on me, uh, given that at, at least at the time, I attributed this change in his state to his heavy marijuana use. And I was left with that thought for quite a while. Then I came here to the US, did my residency in psychiatry because I, was, I knew I was always gonna be interested in studying something about the brain and the, man, and, and, uh, and the mind. Um, and I did my residency and then came here to Yale in 1992 to do a fellowship um, for two years. Uh, and then I developed an interest in uh, that was focused. It's been focused for the last 25 years or so on, uh, on everything about marijuana uh, or cannabis. So that's the short uh, and sweet uh, you know, version of, of my background. Yeah, it's interesting how something like that could have such a profound impact on really your whole life and your career. Um, this colleague, he was a was he a medical student or college student? Oh no, he was a medical student. So he was in med school with me. And is he still a doctor? He is. He, you know, he's. Uh, I believe he stopped using uh, marijuana and was able to recover. But I know that during that period, shortly after he used very heavily. He, um, he he had a number of negative consequences, but I believe he has recovered and moved on and is practicing. Yeah. Oh, that's good. You know, interesting you bring that up. This is not where I was going to start yeah. asking you questions, but um, I recently spoke with somebody from a medical school in uh, New York. I'll let them be anonymous uh, because <laughs> they're guilty, but yeah. they said they had so many medical students who like finished medical school and applying to residency and they were failing their drug test. And this is an open book test. Like, you know, you're going to come in on Tuesday. Um, and their answer to that um, was, you know, they were worried about the liability of having, you know, a surgeon or a doctor, you know, who, who uses marijuana to treat patients. And so they decided just to stop testing instead of dealing with the problem. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm 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 quite sure I wouldn't want uh, a surgeon working on me if I knew that they were, you know, using cannabis on a regular basis or were addicted to it. Let's let's put it that way. Right, and that comes from the psychiatrist who studies the brain. Who right. wouldn't want <laughs> right? So tell us about the brain. Teach us about the brain. You. This is your specialty. Uh, I want our audience to learn, you know, some of the uh, basics of brain chemistry. So then we could learn more what you know about depression, schizophrenia, um, psychosis and such. So that's a very, very broad question. And I'm not sure I'll be able to. Uh, Give uh, me a whole there, big hour lesson. Of, <laughs> but, it, but if you can narrow the question down to, for example, if, if it's if your interest is in, say, um, cannabis and how it affects the brain. Um, or cannabis and its relationship with mental illness, uh, I can provide you with a, a lot more focused kind of responses. Yes, let's do that. And by the way, to our audience, you could tell that Dr. D'Souza is a psychiatrist because he talks very calmly. And I love all my uh, psychiatrist friends. And then you get a bunch of ER doctors together and we're all hyper and anxious. But yes, please give us a focused answer. So, so yeah, so as you know, cannabis has been around for for a very, very long time. And but we didn't know exactly how it worked. And then in 1963, Raphael Mechulam, 
at the Hebrew University in Israel uh, identified Delta 98C as the principal active constituent of cannabis or marijuana. Um, that was in 1963. Uh, and while we knew that the principal active constituent of cannabis was Delta 98C, we still didn't know exactly how it worked until almost 25 years later in 1988, when in 1988-89, um, scientists at the, um, here in the US discovered uh, receptors in the brain um, that uh, were responsible for uh, the effects or that were involved in the effects of cannabis. So uh, I, I don't know um, the level of, uh, scientific knowledge of your audience. So I don't want to make any assumptions about whether people know what a receptor is or not, but would you like me to just speak a little about that? Or is that something that's... Yeah, I do the basics, the basics. Yeah. Basics, okay. We have a, we have a smart audience. Oh, okay. All right. So receptors... Uh, no. Okay. So receptors in the brain are basically um, um, sites within the brain. Uh, one, one analogy one could use is a lock and a key where the lock is a receptor and the key is a neurotransmitter that unlocks that receptor uh, and, and then that leads to a cascade of events once that receptor is activated. So if you think about delta 98 c as the key, then the cannabinoid receptor in the brain is the lock. And when delta 98 c binds to that uh, receptor, it opens that lock and that results in a cascade of events. So in 1988-89, scientists discovered two receptors. One was the brain, uh, the cannabinoid receptor number one, which is present primarily in the brain, and a second cannabinoid receptor, the CB2 receptor, which is present mainly in the periphery uh, on immune cells, uh, on white blood cells, and, uh, and other areas. So, uh, so that was when really we began to learn a lot more about the, uh, about the way that cannabis produces its effects. Soon after the discovery of those receptors, of those cannabinoid receptors, the next logical question for people in the field was, if there's a receptor in the brain, what is the endogenous, or what is the brain, what chemical is the brain producing that normally interacts with that receptor? So it would be like the analogy I would give to you, it would be like in the 1970s, we discovered that the brain was making endorphins that bound to opioid receptors. So just as heroin and morphine are external opioids that bind to opioid receptors in the brain, endorphins are the endogenous opioids that the brain manufactures. Um, and that's irrespective of whether someone uses uh, opioids or not. That's present in humans and in, 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 in animals. So likewise, the question that was raised was, is the brain producing any cannabis-like substance that binds to these cannabinoid receptors? And the answer is that yes, there were at least two of these molecules discovered. One, again, it was identified by folks at, uh, who were working with Rafi Mekulam in Israel at the Hebrew University, uh, they discovered a substance that they called anandamide, named after the Sanskrit word anand, which means bliss. Now, I may be saying it a bit odd for you. I'm saying anandamide because I'm Indian and I know the exact pronunciation of the Sanskrit word anand. But most people in the US would call it anandamide. So anandamide is what you'd say, but anandamide is what it really is. So, there were two molecules um, discovered. One was anandamide, and the other is called 2-AG. And so the brain is producing these molecules, regardless of whether a person has ever used marijuana, this is present, these molecules are present in mice and rats and dogs and, and so on and so forth. So obviously what that, what, what that um, makes us think about is why does the brain have an endocannabinoid system? it must be serving some important function. And I'll come to that in a minute. So 
the discovery of these two endogenous molecules called that we call endocannabinoids, anandamide and THC, uh, anandamide and 2-HE, sorry, uh, then led to other scientists um, attempting to characterize how these molecules made, how they synthesized, how they broken down, and what function they serve. So we now know exactly how these molecules are synthesized, we, uh, and we know how they are broken down. And why is that important for us to know? Because it then opens up the opportunity for us to develop medications that might work on different parts of this system. So let's say there's a condition where perhaps having more of endocannabinoids in the brain would be, would be useful. Then maybe you can develop a drug or a medication that blocks the breakdown of one of these substances. And indeed, that, and I'll come to that later on, that is what we, we are in that stage now where we are developing medications that might be based on that. So coming back to the question of why do we have an endocannabinoid system? What, is, what purpose does it serve? It seems like the brain endocannabinoid system plays an important role um, as, in, as an orchestrator or a regulator. So it, what it does is it mediates uh, or it regulates the release of other neurotransmitter system, uh, neurotransmitters. So for example, if the neurotransmitter, say glutamate is released in the brain, um, the release of glutamate and the bind, and when that glutamate binds to its receptor, that triggers the synthesis of endocannabinoids, which go back to the presynaptic neuron and shuts down the further release of glutamate. So it's like a feedback mechanism. That's what one important role that the endocannabinoid system plays at a very basic level. But we think the endocannabinoid system may be very important in reward processing, in sleep, in circadian rhythms, in the regulation of fear and anxiety. Um, these are some of the functions that the endocannabinoid system might play a role. Uh, now, coming back to uh, how we might be able to harness different aspects of this endocannabinoid system. So as I mentioned to you, now that we know how, say, anandamide is broken down, we know there's an enzyme that breaks down anandamide. That enzyme is called fatty acid amide hydrolase. And many companies have developed inhibitors of this enzyme. So inhibitors of fatty acid amide hydrolase. So what happens when uh, a, an inhibitor of this enzyme is administered to, to an animal or a human is that it prevents the breakdown of anandamide and allows anandamide to accumulate to a higher level. Okay. So what might one ap application of that be? Uh, we, in back in 2011, uh, began to think about what we might do for the treatment of cannabis use disorder. As you know, some people get addicted to cannabis and they get addicted to cannabis in the way that people get addicted to cigarettes or uh, alcohol. They, they cannot control the use of, of uh, cannabis uh, and they run into many problems related to the cannabis use. And there's no treatments for cannabis use disorder. So we thought that what if we give people a drug that blocks this enzyme that breaks down anandamide. And that way we'll increase anandamide levels in the brain and the person may not feel the need to use cannabis. Or if they experience cannabis withdrawal um, normally, this would prevent them from experiencing cannabis withdrawal. And so we actually did a study with this drug uh, that was developed by the company Pfizer. And we showed that individuals who got this drug relative to placebo, when they were, when they stopped using cannabis, they had less cannabis withdrawal and they also uh, reduced their consumption of cannabis in the, in, in the four week period of the trial. So, so that would be one 
application of drugs that might work for, uh, uh, that might be useful in the treatment of some neuropsychiatric disorders. Fascinating. So um, that, by the way, that was a very great explanation of receptors and the feedback loop. So that was very good. Um, I have a question for Mark. Mark has a son who, when he turned 18, received a medical marijuana card, medical, I say in quotations, and that was his ticket to become addicted, um, now suffering from depression and other medical and um, emotional problems. He's very concerned about his son having irreparable damage to the brain. And so his question to you is, what can be done to rewire the brain and improve motivation and undo the depression? Is there such a way, a possibility to rewire um, the brain from such problems? So, so rewiring the brain is, a, is certainly possible and it depends when that happens. You know, it, the brain is an incredible organ, is such a plastic organ. You know, we can, even in our, 70s learn how to play the piano uh, and 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 do things that that reflect the brain's capacity to change and learn information and form new connections etc so and especially the developing brain the brain between the age of 15 to 26 undergoes vast changes and so i would assume that if mark's son stops using cannabis he has he might be able to uh you know change uh, his brain in a way to compensate for whatever problems he may have experienced as a consequence of his cannabis use. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the many issues that this case raises is, is that a number of clinicians are, are unaware of some of the potential consequences of issuing Marijuana, medical marijuana cards. Um, first of all, uh, it's fairly common knowledge that there are very, very, very few conditions for which there is solid evidence uh, that cannabinoids can actually be beneficial. So if you were to apply, for example, the same standards that the FDA uses to approve medications, uh, I would argue that for the overwhelming majority of conditions for which states have approved medical marijuana, it would not pass the test of the FDA. There are yeah, just a handful not. of conditions for which there is some evidence, and that includes uh, certain kinds of pain, chronic neuropathic pain, wasting in, uh, and, in HIV and AIDS, uh, spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis, those are a few of the conditions for which there's some evidence. But the, for the overwhelming number of other conditions, and that list is now, for example, in the state of Connecticut, it's already 50 indications. For the overwhelming number you know, of those conditions, it's limited. Sorry. It sounds like it annoys you like it annoys me. We have politicians giving us lists of diagnoses with not really asking the doctors, right? Yeah. So you, you'll see, I've seen, you know, you know, um, policy written in legislative language that you can use it for uh, glaucoma and seizures and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, you can't. I mean, who, where did you come up with this? Yeah, so um, that's that's what happened in the state of Connecticut. The legislators decided that there were, I think it was six or eight conditions for which uh, medical marijuana was approved. And I'm a psychiatrist. One of the conditions that they approved it, this is almost... 10 years ago was PTSD, even though at the time there was really no evidence to support it other than anecdotal evidence where people um, with that condition were reporting some relief from certain symptoms. But clinical trials that have been done ever since then, double-blind randomized placebo-controlled studies have shown that uh, cannabis was no better than placebo in reducing symptoms. Right. So, so, so when the politicians were playing doctor, they were harming their patients. They didn't take the Hippocratic Oath. And all those people who use marijuana for PTSD have been hurt by politicians playing doctor. 
So unfortunately, I mean, that's another story, but a lot of this is driven by massive commercial interests. You know, as you know, the cannabis industry is a, is a billion dollar industry and is only continuing to grow. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are, if you think back to, if you look back to the history of tobacco, you see many parallels. Um, and it only took us 75 years to understand, fully understand, and then acknowledge that, you know, uh, the harms of, of smoking cigarettes and cigarettes remain, tobacco remains in the top 10 of global disease burden. You can still go out and buy it at any gas station. And, um, and so uh, I, I, I wish we would learn from these past experiences, but that doesn't seem to be the case. You're absolutely talking my language. Um, but uh, Mark's son has a cannabis use disorder. As a psychiatrist, you're seeing people with cannabis use disorder, cannabis-induced um, psychosis. What's your experience in treating this disease just to give, you know, some hope to people who have this problem? Sure. So, um, so the first thing to, uh, to, to consider is that... Um, Cannabis use disorder is only being fully recognized maybe in the last five years or so, uh, in part because a lot of the data on the rates of cannabis use disorder were derived from studies done in the 70s and 80s when the cannabis that was around was about 4% THC. And as you know, in, this, in just in a few decades, the average THC content of cannabis has gone up uh, fourfold, and uh, in some, and, and there are many, many products out there that are, you know, 20, 30, 90% THC. And if you, uh, if the science shows that, um, that the effects of cannabis are directly related to the THC content, um, it would be reasonable to assume that uh, as cannabis gets more potent, it's more likely for people to get addicted to it. Right. And therefore, more recent studies, epidemiological studies, for example, the NISARC study, uh, which is a, 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 a study that's done every, I believe, 10 years or so, uh, showed that in amongst daily cannabis users, about 30%, not 10%, will become addicted to cannabis. So the first thing is recognition. Uh, and another piece that's changed is that DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, five, which we use in psychiatry, um, has only in the fifth edition recognized cannabis withdrawal to be a syndrome. Previously, uh, cannabis withdrawal was not listed in DSM, uh, in DSM. So we now know that in people who are regular users of cannabis, they may, um, when they try to quit, they're going to experience withdrawal symptoms. And that often results in them going back to using cannabis. And the common withdrawal symptoms include disturbance of sleep, disturbance of appetite, um, uh, changes in mood. Uh, so people have a hard time falling off to sleep and that's one of the important reasons why they go back to using cannabis. They become more irritable and testy with, their, with the people around them. Uh, they lose their appetite, they can lose their weight. And then sometimes rarely there can be autonomic um, signs also uh, accompanying the cannabis withdrawal. So um, what do we do about um, cannabis uh, use disorder? I suppose the first thing to, so to say is that we don't have any approved pharmacological treatments for cannabis use disorder. I just mentioned to you that we, um, we did a study with a, a novel approach uh, harnessing the brain's own endocannabinoid system by blocking the enzyme that breaks down anandamide, the principal endocannabinoid in the brain. And that study had very promising results. We followed that up with a subsequent study, which was much larger and involved um, uh, four different sites, um, Yale, Columbia, Johns Hopkins, and Medical University of South Carolina, we are still wading through that data. And on some of the measures, it seems like it, uh, there, some, there seems to be some promise. But there's nothing FDA approved as yet for the treatment of cannabis use disorder. Uh, what clinicians can do 
is, for example, try and treat some of the, um, the, the main uh, withdrawal symptoms associated with, uh, with when one stops using cannabis. So for example, there are studies showing that you could use um, um, you know, common hypnotics to, to help people sleep when they're having trouble sleeping as a consequence of quitting cannabis. Do you do do you do? I'm afraid of doing that. Um, that yeah, giving it, people because that too is addicting. It, it 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 depends what the context and the framework is. So at the end of the day, you as a physician are in control of the prescription. And if you're absolutely clear that you are getting X number of pills of let's say lorazepam, and this is the taper schedule and I'm not renewing it and you're getting it for two weeks or three weeks or whatever, and I'm not renewing it. And, and, in, and it's because these are potentially addictive drugs and I might be replacing one addiction with another. It can be done. So it can be done as long as the boundaries and the parameters are very clear to everyone and they agree upon that at the outset. Uh, another approach that has been tested and you use also Ambien? Like, do you give sleeping yeah. pills too? Yeah. You, you do. Ambien, Ambien or Lorazepam. That's what some studies have, have suggested. Um, mm. Another um, approach. Interesting. That I'd be afraid of doing that from the emergency department because just, just to tell you another study that I did is looking at everybody who died of a medication. I went to the medical examiner and said, give me every single person um, who died of a medication. And I looked at their uh, PDMP report before they died um, and, and, and published on that study. But the other question I kind of asked, because number one drug that was being prescribed was hydrocodone. So everybody's focused on you know the opioid epidemic, too much prescription. But if I looked at number of deaths per prescription, number one drug prescribed per death was um, Librium. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And that it made sense because that's probably the most non-compliant group of people with people with the alcohol use disorder who we give that to, to help with stopping alcohol, but then they end up using both. So we really didn't help anything. So, so context may be important. So I think most people who seek treatment for cannabis use disorder are unlikely to go to the emergency room. I think the, the, the people who go to the emergency room with a cannabis-related complaint would be would fall into maybe two categories. One, those people who have cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, uh, where uh, for which they go to the ER because they cannot stop vomiting and they have electrolyte imbalance, et cetera, et cetera. And the other would be people who go to the ER um, because they've had an acute episode of psychosis or they've had an acute panic attack uh, and they're going to the emergency room for that. But in general, people... So, so I could just... Sorry, sorry, yeah. I'm interrupting. No, go ahead. Go ahead. As an emergency physician, I can just tell you this, you know, 30 years experience. Yeah. When I started my career, I didn't see anybody with marijuana poisonings. Now, every single shift, I have patients with exactly what you're saying, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome and cannabis-induced psychosis. And they're there because they're vomiting and you know we give them fluids and, and treat them actually with Haldol, antipsychotics. Yeah. Um, and, then, um, and then the people with cannabis-induced psychosis, which frankly, we're not diagnosing appropriately because they're there with psychosis and we treat the psychosis, but we don't really look at, oh, well, they're, they're positive for marijuana. We don't make that connection. But we also see every day, um, if you look, if you don't look, you won't see. But, you know, I, I work in a trauma unit, you know, and a guy with a motorcycle accident. I'll say, we're, you know, were you using? Yeah, I use dabs. And I, it's like, okay, <laughs> that's associated. And how much do you use? Oh, I use every day since I was 12. Well, he has a cannabis use disorder. He's there for a car accident, but he has a cannabis use disorder. Yeah. I'll see patients there, there with atrial fibrillation or heart problems or syncope. And it's because of their cannabis use. I had, um, uh, you, you know, it affects the heart. It affects their drug interactions because people are using, especially older people. In in one study out of California, there's been an yeah. eighteen thousand. You know that percent. study? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Percent 16, percent increase. And it's like those are my patients. They're yeah. there 
because um, they fell, they're dizzy, they're weak, and they don't realize that their cannabis interacts with their lisinopril, their blood pressure medicines, their Lyrica, and, and they're spending a lot of money actually on yeah. these products without no anybody telling them about these drug interactions. But anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, I- No, no, no. Uh, so where did, where, I'm, I'm not sure where I-, I We I were talking about uh, contacts of people come to the yeah, emergency yeah, yeah, department. Yeah, okay. yeah. So um, I suppose um, context is important. So people are coming in for acute, you know, events uh, like hyperemesis or psychosis, but people who, um, who who have a cannabis use disorder in general are seeking out treatment, usually in outpatient settings. And they're often being told that, I'm sorry, we really don't have any specialized program for cannabis use disorder. Most of the programs, the behavioral interventions are basically adaptations of what is being used for say alcohol use disorder or something else. So there's what about not- tobacco? I have people to try to follow tobacco cessation and apply it to marijuana. Is that smart? You mean like replacement? No, like um, you know, like the 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 quitting programs and incentives or the cognitive behavioral therapy that they have for quitting tobacco and apply it to marijuana. So uh a number of these behavioral strategies have been tested, but none yeah. of them have been really that impressive. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately. One pharmacological approach that has, that showed some, um, that shall, I wouldn't even want to say promise, but kind of made sense is replacement. So what if you give someone dronabinol and then slowly taper them off over, over time? Uh, what studies have shown is that that approach works to uh, to minimizing cannabis withdrawal syndrome. But unfortunately, that does not translate into a person stopping their use of cannabis once they're done with that withdrawal. So we are still looking. We're still looking for potential treatments for cannabis use disorder. And truth be told, I think there hasn't been enough research in this area because we are much more preoccupied with the opioid epidemic and alcohol. But um, I, I suspect over the years, as we see increasing rates for people seeking out help for cannabis-related problems, we might have more funding and more research in that yeah. way. I, we need to pay attention to that. I see in, in our study in San Diego, it's 37 cases a day, and that's with you know large underdiagnosis of the problem. So, like, but what is it? Advice would you give as a psychiatrist? this problem. I had a patient who was there with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. She was smoking. She was 12 years old. Uh, she, she cannot stop. She says, I, I, I can't stop. But she yet, I don't know, she's had like 10 CAT scans already, uh, uh, which she didn't need. Um, and she asked, what should I do instead? Should I go to edibles? Should I? Uh, and I thought, God, that's more potent than the, the blunts. Like, why would you use a higher dose? Um, but um, for that particular, I, I told her to try to at least taper down, like use less. Yeah. That, uh, but I don't know what you recommend. That's the only thing that we would be able to do right now, other than you know some kind of forced abstinence on an inpatient unit. Uh, I think there are few choices that we have outpatient. Again, the concept of replacement and withdrawal and slowly tapering the the dose might be something to consider. But I believe um, many people with hyperemesis syndrome go right back after the emergency room to smoking as usual. And they, then they come back over and over and over again. Right. So unfortunately, we don't have any great treatments for cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And you know, truth be told, we only we've only begun to recognize it in, in the last maybe 10 or 15 years. Prior to that, it was completely unheard of. And I suspect it's a reflection of the fact that there, there are many more potent forms of cannabis and can, cannabis products that are available for people and yes. they're using it more. And so these are the consequences. Right. Um, you advise the Connecticut Medical Marijuana Program. And I say again, medical in quotations, because um, you know, the politicians have hijacked the word medical. It's not medical like me and you have a medical degree. Yeah. Um, these are these are so they've hijacked the word medical when it comes to marijuana, but using their language um, as a physician advisor, first of all, 
how do they take you, somebody who talks about harms as a physician advisor in California, they would never have somebody like me. I actually even applied to be an advisor to the California um, Bureau of Cannabis. Um, they want only people who are pro-cannabis. They don't want anybody talking about the harms that are coming in the emergency department or to the psychiatrist's office. So how did you, are they listening to you, to your advice and what advice do you give? So I'll just tell you the reality. The reality is that um, when they conceived of the uh, Physicians Advisory Board that was back, I think in 2013 or so, at a time when legalization in Connecticut wasn't even on the cards, right? Mm -hmm. And at that at the time, I was just doing my research and known in the area as someone who had done research in cannabis. And so it kind of made sense to invite me. But I've uh, you know, been fairly vocal uh, about my concerns, especially with regard to uh, you know, serious mental illness, driving the impact on adolescent brain development. And Good um, for you. But that hasn't made much of a difference. Oh. The, the, <laughs> They the list you. has only grown. So the reality is, even though I serve on this committee and even though I say what, what may not people may not want to hear, the list has grown from six when I joined to now it's close to over 50. Yeah, yeah, of, of, of problems. Well, good for you. Please don't stop and, and, and call people on it when they call something a medicine when it's not a medicine. Um, and uh, I want to talk a little bit more about your research. You've like, again, what a, a prolific researcher you've had. Some interesting studies. I kind of like, you know, would love to be in the room where you're injecting volunteers with THC. <laughs> what was that like? Were they like laughing, in a good mood? Who were these people who volunteered to have an IV um, and get injected with uh, THC for you to study sure. what happens to them? So, so uh, I want to spend a minute or two just talking about why uh, I went. Uh, I chose the injectable route. Okay. So, you know, it, at least at the time that I conceived these studies back almost 25, 30 years ago, uh, at that time, the principal way that people were using cannabis was still smoking. Vaping wasn't really happening at the time. And edibles were basically brownies, but not the kind of edibles you get these days. So smoking. Now, uh, as you you know, as an ER uh, you know physician, we have different dead space, vital capacity, uh, so on and so forth. And so, so in order to be able to control and to be able to standardize the delivery of THC, we decided to go with an injectable route, knowing that everything that's injected would reach the brain. Whereas when someone smokes, they may take four puffs in 15 seconds, others may take one puff in 15 seconds, and some may hold their breath for five seconds and others will exhale immediately. So there's a lot of inter and intra-individual variability in uh, even in, in uh, studies where they attempt to standardize the smoking procedure. So for that reason, we went IV. Uh, and, and, uh, and the initial studies were really focused on on just characterizing the behavioral, subjective, cognitive effects and the effects on EEG. And so there were some people who, who began you know, laughing and were giddy and, and having, a, uh, having a good time. And there were some people who found it quite an unpleasant. When I say unpleasant, I'm referring to um, getting paranoid, uh, getting anxious. Uh, and these are placebo-controlled studies. So we, uh, and because they were, crossover studies, and that would mean that I would do the placebo day, the low dose day, and the medium dose day, and so I would serve as my own control. Uh, and in those placebo-controlled double-blind studies, we showed that uh, THC could induce uh, a, a number of symptoms that I was very interested in at the time. Wait, when you say you were your own control, did you give this to yourself? No, no, no. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just saying, the studies were crossover designs, meaning if a person took part, they completed all three conditions, which allowed us to compare their response on each condition to themselves. So instead of being a between subject comparison, oh, I see. it was a within subject comparison, which is a much more powerful design. Okay. 
Yeah. So that's what I mean. Sorry. That's, that's what I meant. Um, and so we, uh, you know, we had a range of responses and that's what's fascinating. I'm still trying to understand why does person X experience anxiety and person Y be very chilled out? What are the factors that determine that? Is it one's genes? Is it one's personality? Uh, is it one's mental state at the time that they took part in the study? What are those factors that determine that? Because if we know what fact what those factors are, then we may be in a position to, for example, tell uh, you know a person. By the way, you have this gene, and the polymorphism of this gene uh, is going to make you likely experience psychosis if you smoke weed. And um, that would be amazing if we could we could have that degree of precision in in uh, in being able to tell people in advance, young people, by the way, you shouldn't smoke cannabis until you're 26 because you're at very high risk for developing, say, schizophrenia or a psychotic disorder. Yeah. Right. And from your study, um, there were definitely uh, volunteers who developed schizophrenic-like symptoms. Yes. So I want to make sure I, 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 I'm very clear about that. People didn't develop schizophrenia, the whole disorder, but what people experienced were symptoms like schizophrenia. And the best analogy I could give you would be imagine, people know about a cardiac stress test, right? Yeah. You can go through a cardiac stress test and you can experience pain or you can experience changes on the EKG, but that doesn't mean that you've had a heart attack. So that's the analogy I'm using. People may experience symptoms that resemble some of the symptoms of schizophrenia but they don't develop schizophrenia taking part in these studies. I, I use the analogy of like, um, you could tell me if it's a good analogy or not. I say psychosis is a symptom and schizophrenia is the chronic disease. It's Correct. like cough versus pneumonia or lung cancer. Right. Or chest pain versus having a heart, heart attack. attack. Heart attack, yeah. So that's the that's perfect. That's great. So yes, so, so my initial studies involved the administration of, of THC, um, and we did lots of studies in people with uh, healthy individuals, people who smoke cannabis to different degrees. Uh, and we, and I, as a psychiatrist, was very interested in people with schizophrenia, often wondered how I could explain the, follow, the following discrepancy. My patients, some of my patients would come to me and say, Doc, when I smoke weed, my voices go away. And then I would see the same patient in the emergency room and something was not matching up. And when I looked at the literature, the only literature that was around was this self-medication hypothesis, according to which people with schizophrenia use cannabis or alcohol to treat some of the core symptoms of their illness. And when Is it I kind of like tobacco, how we know that schizophrenic um, nicotine decreases in some of the negative effects um, of schizophrenia? Is I, I, I'll come to that. I'll come to that in a minute. But the idea was that perhaps cannabis or alcohol was reducing some of the core symptoms of schizophrenia. And when I looked more carefully at the literature, there was no real evidence to support it. It makes common sense. And we as clinicians often use this term all the time, self-medication, right? So we did a study. It, anno it annoys me. I don't like that word because... So we yeah. Again, taking the word medicine and, and now it makes anything a medicine. Well, I'm self-medicating, but that's not okay. So I don't like that word. <laughs> so to, to test that self-medication hypothesis, we did a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled study where we invited patients with schizophrenia and they agreed to take placebo, a low dose and a medium dose of THC. And we asked them in real time, how are your symptoms? And what we found was that THC worsened their symptoms. It didn't make it better. What did change was momentarily, they felt less anxious. And so their global perception was, I'm feeling better. But their actual core symptoms of schizophrenia actually got worse. And by the way, I think that that's how it works in pain too. It doesn't reduce your pain. It makes you like care less about the pain for exactly. a short period exactly. of time. Right. So, but there, there are consequences to that because if you keep doing that over and over and over again, right. first of all, you develop tolerance and then you can have rebounds. So people get 
much more anxious when they stop using and things like that. So, right. so we, and by the way, the same thing happens with pain. When people yeah. do that, then you have an injury, their reaction to pain, working in the emergency department, we see people in pain all the time, but the reaction for people who are regular cannabis users, they can't manage their pain. Their pain level is way higher than for the same injury, people who are not using. Right. So, so basically that self-medication hypothesis you know uh, that we we don't find any evidence to support that that's very um, interesting that's yeah. very important to know right to know about. so i was saying uh, from those early studies that i was doing that were focused mainly on psychosis and reward and cognition i i began to become more interested in cannabis use disorder uh, and treatments for cannabis use disorder and so uh, we we used um, different technologies to understand the impact of cannabis on the brain. So one particular technology we used was is positron emission tomography, PET, uh, where we have the capacity to, in the living human brain, count or measure the number of cannabinoid receptors. And we found that people who use cannabis on a daily basis have about a 15% reduction in the number of cannabinoid receptors across the brain. And what that means is that over time, to get the same level of high or same level of effects, they're going to have to use more and more because their brain cannabinoid system is adapting to being constantly bombarded with cannabis by down-regulation. So the numbers of receptors go down. So that was one- Same thing that happens with um, dopamine, right? Uh, for people who are on- uh, methamphetamine or any drugs, right? Yeah. Your receptors go down. Correct. Down regulation, with the exception of nicotine, where the opposite happens. But be that as me. So we we also have a, another, um, uh, a, another way of looking at the number of synapses in the brain. So obviously, one of my concerns is the impact of cannabis on the developing brain. And we were we wanted to look at whether there was any change in the number of synapses in the brain, in the living brain, uh, in cannabis users. Now, in the past, if you wanted to answer that question, you'd have to do post-mortem studies. You have to wait for someone to die and then section their brain and compare that to someone who has, wasn't using. We now have the capacity with PET to take chemi chemical molecules that say bind to synaptic proteins tag them with radioactive uh, radioactive label, and that allows us to image those synapses. And we found that regular cannabis users had about a 13% reduction in the number of synapses in the hippocampus, which is the part of brain which is most important for learning and memory. Uh, so we found a reduction in the hippocampus. And furthermore, the same people uh, performed worse on a task that requires hippo, hippocampal function, a memory task. So what, what we were doing is relating a structural change in the brain with a functional change in the hippocampus, those two. Now, we are following up that study to see whether if someone stops using cannabis, can the number of synapses recover? Can it go back to normal? And that, so that's a study that we're doing in, that's in progress right now. Interesting. I think we, wasn't that study done with methamphetamine and it shows that you can recover? So different drugs, uh, that story may be different. So there's some drugs where uh, it may or may not recover and other drugs um, where uh, it may be a different story. So the only way we're going to tell is by actually, uh, actually testing that out. And so that's what we're doing right now. Interesting. Yeah. And then, and the association with memory, is that yes. the study that you've shown that hurt? With so one of the most <clears throat> reliable effects, acute effects of cannabis, uh, especially in our lab, we've shown this repeatedly, is that it impairs verbal memory. There's no question, acutely. And why is that relevant, especially amongst adolescents and, and young adults, is if they're in school, where they have to be learning and retaining information, you could imagine that get, being high will disrupt scholastic you know, life 
in a way that uh, that would be negative, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, so those are acute effects. Uh, in terms of chronic, but by the way, I, we see that also, and yeah. I know that you talk about this in uh, drug driving. So when people pull, you know, when you get pulled over for being drunk on alcohol, you know, they do a test where you can't put your yeah. finger on your nose. You can't yeah. walk in a straight line. People with uh, who are high on cannabis, they can walk a straight line. But if you tell them, walk three steps, raise your hand, turn around, they'll be like, what did you say again? My right hand, my left, you know, they can't, that short term memory is shot. And that's kind of what they're teaching. Uh, um, you know, law enforcement in recognizing impaired driving. Yeah, drug drug recognition experts, DRS. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Besides that, you know, we uh, at 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 Yale, the at the um, the dean of the medical school and the department of psychiatry decided to create a new center. Uh, the center is going to be called the Yale Center for the Science of Cannabis and Cannabinoids. It's going to focus on. Um, the consequences of cannabis, both the negative consequences, but we will also study if there are potential benefits. Uh, the difference is that when we want to study potential benefits, we're going to do it the right way, which is we're going to do double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled studies with sample sizes that are sufficient so that at the end of the study, we can conclusively say, yes, this CBD or THC works for condition X, or it definitely doesn't work for condition X. Uh, I think that's what uh, the focus of the center is going to be on, is on studying the science of cannabis and cannabinoids. Are you head of that center? Yes, I'm going to be. Uh, I have the you know great privilege of of leading that center. It's uh, it's still up, you know, still kind of working things out. But hopefully, you know, over the next five years or so, we may be able to. Uh, generate uh, information that would help, um, you know, people make informed decisions. And that includes moms and dads, young kids and young adults and, and towns and cities um, and, and healthcare systems as we think about what is a, a unfolding ex grand experiment in our country where we are, you know, uh, legalizing um, cannabis for medical and for recreational uses. Right. And that, that's the sad part is that we legalize it all over and then we're studying it, right? The center is happening, you know, uh, 10 years too late. It should be the other way around. But right. with you at the head of it, I am, I'm very confident um, that things will be done the right way um, with the right information. And hopefully, unlike the, you know, Connecticut Cannabis Board, they will listen um, to your science. I, I want to make sure my, my colleagues on the board, I'm sure they must uh, are listening, but I, I, but, um, I, I suppose uh, there's a lot of pressure from patients uh, who want uh, cannabis for, you know, medical. People, people love marijuana. Uh, they love it like their religion, right? You can't speak. If somebody who has an addiction you can't speak negatively about it. It's like you would be cursing, you know, God or Muhammad. Um, you know, they there's it, it's it, it, you don't talk about your alcohol even that much. Um, so it's it's unusual how somewhere in those receptors there's a real a real affinity uh, for that for people who like it. But the harms, um, as you see and as I see every day, we can't argue about that and. Um, it's it's um, extremely harmful, not just for our youth. We talk about the developing brain, but on older adults. And I agree with you, you know, a hundred percent. When we just want an informed public, that's what's fair. You need to know if you're going to smoke a cigarette, you understand you could get lung cancer, heart disease. If you drink alcohol, you understand it could hurt your liver. But right now, we're being hidden from the truth, and that's why I like to speak to marijuana because. People need to understand the risks, not be have the hit, risks hidden from them. Right. I, I completely agree. This is all about getting high quality information. And right. then what people do after that is up to them. Yeah.
Do you have time to tell us a little bit about, you know, other drugs like psychedelics are coming out? Oh, that's good for also, again, good for PTSD and uh, good for your depression. And Sure. I I have a few, uh, you maybe five or 10 minutes I can talk about that. It it is an area that I actually am, uh, have been doing some work work on, but uh, relatively quietly. But it's again, it's also an area where the hype has far outpaced the science. Uh, you know, so uh, there are very few double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled studies of an adequate size. There are a few that are coming out now, um, but clearly the interest uh, and the amount of information that's out there, especially in non-medical um, arenas, is is quite impressive. It's quite impressive. So, um, you know, there, there is... Uh, a lot of interest in using drugs like uh, the classic serotonergic hallucinogens like psilocybin, LSD, and DMT in, uh, in um, combined with, say, uh, psychotherapy or some talk therapy in reducing, um, for example, depression, anxiety, end-of-life um, anxiety, and things like that. Um, and there's a, there's there are lots of researchers who are now beginning to do studies. Uh, I think it, in the next five or ten years we'll have a lot more clarity on what does work, what doesn't work. There are lots of unanswered questions that we have um, that include, for example, are the psychedelic effects absolutely necessary for the beneficial effects? What is the magnitude? of psychedelic effects that are necessary? As in, do you have to be at this level of psychedelic effects or is this level just good enough? We don't know that. Uh, Do you have to have psychedelic effects that last for four to six hours to derive benefits or would in half an hour experience be enough? Uh, What is the correct dose? We don't know some of these basic things that we are still kind of working on, right? Um, what is very seductive about these psychedelic drugs, and I am certainly very intrigued by that, is the idea that just one dose, one dose, can lead to effects or beneficial effects that last for weeks on end. So that last well beyond the acute psychedelic effects. That is very, very appealing because that could be a game changer. Right. If someone has depression these days, you know, the current treatment, you let's say you take an SSRI, you have to take it every day for weeks and months on end. But if you didn't have to take a drug every every day and you just had these psychedelic sessions once every six months or so, I think that would be that would be very, very appealing to people, right? Right. Uh, and if the claim, if the claim that these drugs work almost immediately uh, is true, then that's another game changer. Because right now, if you have depression, uh, you've got to wait for several weeks before these the drugs that we have, the typical drugs that we have, begin to have an antidepressant effect. So that would be a game changer. But all these questions have not, we still need to answer some of these questions. Uh, right. And then the final question for me is how are these drugs producing these effects? Do we know exactly what the mechanism of action is? Um, and if we know what the mechanism of action is, perhaps we can we can derive or we can develop drugs that may not have some of the side effects or the effects that make, make these drugs unpalatable. Maybe we can do that. So until we develop a good idea of the mechanism of action, we won't know that. Right. And then as you have said uh, uh, and even written about before is put the cart before the horse. Just because we have you saying, because people will say, oh, look, he says psychedelics are good. That does not mean go to Amazon and buy mushrooms and end up seeing me in the emergency room. Um, that that means there's some research promising towards FDA-approved uh, medications for this disease. That does not mean we need to legalize psychedelics all over the country and increase our mental health crisis. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think these are very powerful drugs that I would be very uncomfortable uh, about these drugs being used outside the a context where there's enough medical and psychiatric supervision. I really do think that's going to be very, very important. The last thing we'd want is people to be, as you said, you know, just using them without any supervision, without any uh, safeguards in place. Right. So California now wants to psychedelics because they say, oh, look, researchers say it's good for, they're going to make a list, just like you said, for PTSD and for anxiety and depression and <laughs> cannabis use disorder. They're going to, you know, the politicians are going to run with the idea. And I think each time you talk about research with promising medications saying, be careful, exactly what you said. These are powerful drugs yeah. before the horse. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, unfortunately, it's, it's driven by commercial interests. People are interested in making, uh, finding a way to make money off this. And that's what's really driving, driving this. Um, yeah. I want to say thank you to Mark and Mark. Thank you for your question. And I bless your son with uh, recovery and health, uh, mental and physical, and admire you for your work. Uh, you and parents like you are the reason I do what I do. And um, Dr. D'Souza, you're amazing. Um, I'm a fan. Uh, keep it up. Um, you're speaking the right scientific uh, word. You're you're sounding the alarm on harms while still providing uh, care and 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 doing the research that it's necessary for people to have informed decision. Um, congratulations on your center, and uh, may you have a lot more success. Thank you. Appreciate it, and good luck, uh, Mark, with your uh, with your son. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, Listen to their speaker series and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. <laughs>